Greetings, everyone. I'm so thankful that we have this opportunity to connect with one another in spite of these challenging times and the distance that separates us right now. I'm so thankful for the perspective that we have from the book of Romans, that we can know with full confidence that God is working all of these things together for his glory and for our good. And so we can rejoice and we can continue to learn and to grow in our faith during this time. Remember that during challenging times, God calls us to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Some of you have lived in a culture that is not your own before. Many of you are not native to Southern California. Many of you are not native to the United States. And so most of you have experienced what it's like to come to a culture that is not your own and to try and learn how to fit in with that culture. When you become a Christian, it's a little bit like coming to a new culture, only unlike a cross-cultural experience where you want to fit in, the goal is not to fit in. Where you once belonged to this world system and the ways of doing things, now you're a new creation, and the world, no matter what culture you're in, is no longer your home. The more you grow in holiness, the less and less that you will feel at home in the world. As we talked about last week, part of what makes you stand out as a believer is that the Christian view of humility and self-sacrifice is something that is totally countercultural. That's why Paul gives so much attention to it here and in his other epistles. Holiness, humility, and self-denial were countercultural in the Roman world, just like they're countercultural in our society today. Christians will always stand out as different in the world around them. And Paul tells us that that's actually a good thing. Nonconformity to the world is something that we actually want to seek after. When the gospel transforms you, you begin to renew your mind in God's word. And your way of thinking is now based on the truths as they are revealed in scripture, no longer on the philosophies of this world. This transformation, as we talked about last week, affects your worship, your relationship with God, and it also affects your relationships with one another. Now you live to serve God and others, not yourself, and you serve God by ministering to one another within the body of Christ. Last time we talked about how our gifting to serve within the church is all of grace based on this great doctrine that was already established clearly in Romans 1 through 11. Where is boasting? It has been excluded. We are not saved because of what we have done. Our salvation is not of works, but of grace. And this principle not only applies to the beginning of our Christian life, but it continues to govern all of our lives, including how we serve in the church. The church is the body of Christ And just as all the parts of the physical body are always a part of the whole and have no meaning of themselves except in their relation to the whole body, this countercultural way of living just is not easy. If it were easy, we would not need the commands in the rest of this book. But thanks be to God. He gives us these directions to help us 
to align ourselves with his will for us as members of his body. So today we're going to finish looking at what Paul says regarding our relationships with one another within the body, beginning with familial devotion to the body in verses 9 through 16 of Romans chapter 12. And then we're going to look at what this passage teaches about how we are to relate to those who consider themselves our enemies in verses 19 through 21, in verses 16 through 21. So open your Bibles to Romans 12, if you haven't done that already, and you can follow along with me as I read the passage. Romans 12, verse 9 through 21. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, Give him a drink, for in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Today, we're going to consider 10 ingredients in Paul's recipe for how the body of Christ should function. Like the ingredients of a cake, before you mix them, you can see each of them distinctly for what they are the flour, the sugar, the oil, and the eggs. But as you begin to blend them together, they become one new substance, the cake batter. So as we work our way down this list of ingredients, we can look at them one by one in isolation. But remember, we'll be taking apart what is really one cohesive whole, and that is how we're to interact as the body of Christ. So there will be a lot of overlap and interplay between each of these elements that make up loving service within the body of Christ. And there are many ways to organize and group these commands. This is just one way to consider them. The first ingredient that we'll consider today is sincere love. Sincere love. As we briefly talked about last week, the overarching quality that must control how we use our gifts within the church is love. And really, in chapters 12 to 15 in the book of Romans, Paul is urging us, as recipients of God's mercy, to let love govern and shape all of our human relationships and interactions. Paul's first command here is that our love be marked not by hypocrisy. Let love be without hypocrisy. Verse 9. In other words, our love for one another is to be sincere and genuine, not fake. A hypocrite acts one way on the outside 
and inwardly thinks the opposite. And so in one setting, a hypocrite behaves in one way, and in another setting, they're going to behave in exactly the opposite way. Love that is hypocritical is put on like an act when it suits you, and it's turned off when it no longer gives you any personal benefit. Have you received this kind of love before? When someone needs something from you, they're your best friend, but as soon as you're no longer useful, they act like they don't even know you. Or they're kind to you when you're alone with them, but they ignore you when you're in the company of other people or certain people. Have you ever been guilty of treating another brother or sister in Christ like that? True love has no pretension. It is not about putting on a show, and it's not a tool used only for selfish gain. Hypocritical love would lack the kind of devotion that we're going to read about in the next verse. And our next ingredient, discernment. Instead of wanting and seeking what is best for someone, hypocritical love only seeks one's own good, even at the expense of the other person. So sincere love is the first ingredient of a loving Christian body of Christ. How is discernment an ingredient in the healthy functioning of the church? Well, in order to do good for someone, you have to be able to tell the difference between what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong. Verse 9 goes on to say, abhor what is evil or hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Not only are we to know the difference between good and evil, but we're to rightly assess how to respond to both things. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 5, verses 20 to 24, pronounces woes on those who fail to show this kind of discernment between good and evil. Isaiah 5, 20 to 24 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. In contrast, The prophet Micah in Micah 6 verse 8 gives a clear statement about what God is looking for in his people. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Micah 6 8. Those who are in Christ are to identify and hate anything that threatens the overall well-being of their brothers and sisters in Christ. And they are to identify and stick closely to the things that are for the benefit of the ones that they love. True love wants what is good for the saints and rejects what is wrong in order to protect and care for the other person. I'll share a simple example of what it might look like to abhor evil. Years ago, when my husband was a student at UCLA, he found out that some of his brothers in Christ were being deceptive and were sharing their student IDs in order to get friends into the basketball games for free. Because he loved them, he hated that they were searing their consciences and dishonoring the Lord in this way. And so he did the hard thing of confronting them about their wicked ways. 
Praise God, they responded in humility and with repentance and stopped that behavior. This kind of discernment in our relationships is important for maintaining the kind of purity and loving community that should characterize the body of Christ. Getting people into a basketball game for free might seem like a mild thing, but remember that a tolerance for one sin in our lives often leads to another greater sin. You may have to deal with much larger issues with the people that you love, but if you abhor what is evil and cling to what is good, perhaps you're going to be able to save someone from even bigger sins. What's an example of clinging to what is good? Well, anytime you choose what is best for another believer, even when it's not most convenient to you, for example, going to the doctor with a friend who's scared about a diagnosis, even when you really dislike hospitals and doctor's offices, or following through on a commitment when it is no longer convenient for you to do so, or standing up for someone that you see as being unjustly treated. We're to love one another with such devotion that we're dedicated to their well-being and committed to bringing it about even when it's not beneficial to us. So the first two ingredients that we talked about are sincere love and discernment. And next, tender devotion. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love, verse 10 tells us. Notice that this theme of love continues. When you recognize that we're all a part of the same body and of the same family, that we've been equally redeemed by God's undeserved grace and favor, God calls us to cultivate this family-like devotion. Love for one another with devotion, the kind of devotion that you show to your dearest family members. Sincere love is devoted love. Family members might not always see eye to eye with one another. They might not always get along. They might not always like each other that much. But because of the bond that they share as a family, they will continue to be devoted to one another. The first ones to help out when there's a need. This kind of love is willing to forgive wrongs, overlook sins, and this kind of love stays close even during difficult times. Family members are willing to make sacrifices for the other person and to show them honor. And so this leads into our next ingredient, honor. We are to give preference to one another in honor, verse 10 tells us. Paul calls us to prefer others above ourselves by honoring them or giving them the highest possible esteem. When you have to decide between pleasing yourself or pleasing the other person, choose the other person not grudgingly, but out of respect and with sincerity. This takes place when you set aside your rights for another person. A simple example of this would be when someone's helping you out in the kitchen and you see them doing something differently than you would do it. Well, don't correct them. Show preference for them by allowing them to chop onions or wash dishes in whatever way they choose. This is one really small way to give preference to others, and there are many such opportunities throughout each day. But it also means that we defer to the weaker brother or sister in areas where their consciences are tender. It shows honor for another believer when you eagerly and gladly give up what you think is okay in order not to cause your brother or sister in Christ to stumble. You honor them when you put their preferences above your own. 
Remember that the attitude in making all of these kinds of sacrifices is so important. Not like someone is forcing you to do it against your will, but with eagerness and with willingness. And that leads us into the next ingredient, sincere love, discernment, tender devotion, honor, and now enthusiasm. Verse 11 says, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. A spirit of zeal should fuel your diligent service within the body. Your service in the body of Christ is to be proactive, looking for ways to love, to prefer, and to honor your brothers and sisters. Be quick to do these things, not lazy or negligent about them. Remember that in serving one another, you are serving Christ, and he deserves your very best. When you remember that he is the one that you serve, your hope and your joy are there to sustain you. Because you know that whatever you give up in this life is going to be far outweighed in the life to come as you enjoy glory with Christ forever in heaven. And that hope sustains you and it gives you even more zeal for doing good. In a way, you're already living in that heavenly glory now as you're being transformed, as you're being renewed in your mind, as you study God's word. You're not looking to the here and now for satisfaction. And so for the good of others, you can be focused on them and focused on what would bring the most glory to Christ. You are remembering that the glory is going to far outweigh any suffering that you face for Christ. And the next ingredient is an attitude of devoted patience or perseverance or endurance. I group these three together, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, and devoted to prayer. This one seems of special application during times of difficulty or trial, like the one that we find ourselves in right now. Even in difficulty, in quarantine, or in illness, or in financial uncertainty, you, as a believer, have the confident expectation and hope that Christ will return and that you will be rewarded. That hope should inspire great joy, and it enables you to press on, even though times are tough, And there are great troubles all around you because you know that the outcome of these things is glory. These troubles should also work to drive us to our knees in prayer, always our greatest resource, because we know that it is Christ himself who intercedes for us. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. And we know that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Listen to these verses from Isaiah. Isaiah 25, 9. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited, that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Isaiah 25, 9. And Isaiah 26, 3 through 4. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for in God, the Lord, we have an everlasting rock. And listen to Isaiah 35:10. And the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion, with everlasting joy upon their heads. They will find gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Isaiah 35:10. 
So when you have poured out your heart before him, you can wait patiently, knowing that he has heard you, that he is still in control of whatever happens next, and you can wait with contentment and trust. So, so far we've considered how, as a body, we are to have sincere love for one another, discernment in that love, tender devotion, honor, enthusiasm, and devoted patience. Next in the list is generosity in verse 13, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. And this quality also connects with our patient dependence on Christ. You know, your needs will be met by the God of the universe as you go to him in prayer. And that really frees you up to be able to share your time and your resources to encourage God's people and to help those who are in need. Don't be so preoccupied with your own set of circumstances that you overlook the needs of others. As a new creation in Christ, you're being transformed to be able to see past your own circumstances and recognize that other needs exist out there besides your own. And you're capable of meeting those needs as you depend on Christ to provide for you. And one way that we can show this kind of generosity is by opening our homes to believers who are in need. Even believers you aren't friends with yet. Practicing hospitality is a specific way to contribute generously to the needs of the saints. Now, it's really easy and it's good and it's fun to be kind and generous with your friends. But are you behaving any differently than the world when you do that? When was the last time you showed true kindness and generosity and hospitality to someone that you didn't know very well in the church? This kind of selfless love should be what marks the body of Christ. It's also easy and natural to give and be generous when your own life is going smoothly. But I would challenge you again to show love and kindness to others, even when you're in a time of trial. Depend on Christ for what you need and turn your focus to other people. Have you received this kind of love from someone else before? From someone you know is going through even a harder time than you are? I sure have, and it has served as a great testimony to me of how to depend on the Lord and how to live for others. Even in times right now when we're being asked to isolate ourselves physically from other people, we need to use creativity and wisdom along with technology to find ways to keep giving and showing warm kindness and hospitality to one another. Sincere love, discernment, tender devotion, honor, enthusiasm, devoted patience, generosity. Goodwill is the eighth ingredient that contributes to the healthy function of the body of Christ. And we see it here in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Here, Paul gives us a glimpse ahead as he will shortly deal more specifically with our attitude towards those who consider themselves our enemies. Keep in mind that these next commands are still given in the context of living as members of one another within the body of Christ. In this case, we're considering how the church as a whole is to respond to persecution. And that is with goodwill. The word bless is emphasized in this verse, and that's the hard part, isn't it? Not only do you not curse those who are setting themselves against you, but as the body of Christ, you seek to actively bless them 
by doing good to them, by helping them, and by serving them. I don't want to pass by this too flippantly because this is really hard to do. I was reminded of it even on the way to church. When someone cuts you off or behaves improperly in traffic, it's really hard. Not only not to curse, but also to bless them, to pray for them, to consider their needs as more important than your own. This is something that Christians are to do, and we're to do it together. And we all need this reminder to demonstrate Christian love as one body to those who are outside of the church. Rather than taking an antagonistic view of those outside of us who are maybe actively working against us, we are to come together for the purpose of doing them good. This is completely countercultural, and if we're living this out, we're going to have the most effective outreach and evangelism possible. They consider us their enemies, but we are to consider them our mission field. And as we go to them to bless them, we're bringing glory to God who delights in showing mercy to sinners. Everything that we do in the church is to reflect the character of Christ who loved us, who came to save us even when we were undeserving sinners. In verse 15 to 16, we see the next ingredient after goodwill, and that is sympathetic harmony. This is another crucial component of our body life. In verse 15, we're commanded to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. As those who have been shown mercy, we are to identify with the needs of others. Entering into their experiences and emotions and showing solidarity with them. In their successes, we have no envy. Neither do we take any satisfaction in their hardships or their sorrows. Evaluate your hearts, ladies. It's really easy for us to be so selfish that we find it hard to rejoice with someone who is rejoicing. And we want to gloat when we see others suffering, especially when it's someone who has hurt you or someone that you've been jealous of in the past. But from renewed minds, we are to consider others as more important than ourselves and to enter into both their joys and their sorrows as if they were our very own. When we do this, it contributes greatly to living in harmony or unity with one another in the body of Christ. As Paul commands in verse 16, be of the same mind towards one another. Literally, this command could read, think the same things towards one another. Be harmonious, in other words. As members of one body, we are to live in agreement with equal regard for one another. One another. That means that this verse is definitely directed towards our fellow believers. Our minds have been and are continuing to be renewed by the same spirit. We have the same concerns and we are to come together and work together as one entity. As Paul clearly stated back in verse three, we are not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, but we are to think so as to have sound judgment which leads us into the next and final category, humility. It is necessary for this kind of healthy body life, and much like with love, which was the first in the list, humility really binds all of these other ingredients together. If you want to live a victorious life in the body of Christ, do not be haughty in mind, verse 16. Notice the repetition of this word mind. 
How we think about ourselves and others is so crucial to how we interact within the body of Christ. We all think about ourselves. We really can't help but think about ourselves. But in thinking about yourself, don't be conceited. Don't think about yourself as though you're really something special in a class above the rest. Conceit in mind will keep you from associating with certain people, with people who are different than you or who you perceive to be lowly. Are there people in church, in our church, that you look down upon, maybe for how they dress or how they do their hair, for the job that their husband has, for the way their kids look or behave, for where they go to school, or because their personality just doesn't fit in with you and your friends? Snobs who are concerned with class or position or standing in society have no place in the church, have no place in the body of Christ. Some of you may need to humble yourselves from your own perceived loftiness and come alongside those who you perceive to be lowly because this is commanded and because not to do so betrays a heart of sinful pride and conceit. In our pride, we elevate ourselves to God's status, robbing the true God of the glory that only he deserves. In Isaiah 48, 11, can you tell that I was reading through Isaiah as I studied this passage? In Isaiah 48, 11, God is speaking and he says, for my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. And how can my name be profaned and my glory I will not give to another? If the body of Christ is to function, these kinds of prideful distinctions must disappear. Also, what blessing we miss when we foolishly put ourselves in the place of God, when we foolishly exalt ourselves. Listen to Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God dwells with the humble person. Do you want God to dwell with you? Then you must humble yourself. Humility in mind also blesses us in the church in that it brings us all together as diverse members of one beautiful, living, functioning organism, the body of Christ. Humble minds will associate with all kinds of people, just like Jesus did. And they will use their gifts to bless the whole body, even those lesser members. Think about Jesus and his life. He hung out with the social rejects of society. And he did it in a way that was natural and free, not condescending or with hypocrisy. In fact, Jesus himself was considered an outcast in his time to the point that he was abandoned by everyone who knew him and put to death on a cross, even though he had done nothing wrong. Think about it from this perspective. If Jesus were here today, would you look for him? Would you seek him out? Would you be wanting to spend time with him? Remember Isaiah 53 too. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him nor appearance that we should be drawn to him. He came to us as a servant, as a poor man, as a humble carpenter's son. 
And he has a special care and a special concern for the least of these. If you're truly aware of the mercy of Christ's condescension in coming to earth to save you, a ruined sinner, then you will be renewed in your thinking. You'll be renewed in your thinking about yourself and about your brothers and sisters in Christ. Go to the ones who are hungry, who are poor, who are prisoners, who are outcasts, who are sick and alone. Jesus says that when we care for the least of these, his children, poor and needy, we are really caring for him. So this humility and this love must characterize all of our interactions with the church. Next, in verses 17 to 21, Paul seems to make a transition here to our relationship to our enemies or those outside of the church. And the theme of this section overall is overcoming evil with good as a body. Certainly these things that we're going to talk about now also apply when believers mistreat us. But Paul seems to be really talking about those who don't know Christ in this section. Let's read those verses again, verses 17 to 21. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So while verse 14, bless those who persecute you, touched on how the church is to react to persecution, here in verse 17, Paul moves into more instruction about how the church is to deal with those who consider themselves our enemies. And we can see that just like verse 14, bless, do not curse, Paul is careful to give us a positive counterpart for each negative command in this section. First of all, he says, don't repay, respect, and live in peace. Don't repay, respect. His first instruction in verse 17 is that we never repay evil for evil to anyone. And the positive counterpoint is to respect what is right in the sight of all men. If someone does you wrong, you are not to wrong them in return. In your personal conduct, when enemies are concerned, as in all other ways, you are to imitate Jesus, who did not revile or utter threats when he suffered unjust treatment from sinful men. Instead, you are to respect what is right in their sight. What does it mean to respect what is right in the sight of all men? Well, you have to ask yourself, what is the good or right thing to do in this circumstance that people would generally agree upon? And then you should respect that and do it. For example, if you see your neighbor's front door standing wide open when you don't think they're at home, you should try to contact them and make sure everything's okay and do your best to make sure their home is secure. That would be the right thing to do, even if that neighbor has been a problem to you in the past, or even if that neighbor would not necessarily do the same thing for you. But when we show honor for what is good, then people will witness that, our enemies, as well as those watching, and God will receive the glory. Paul also tells us in verse 18 that if we have any control over the situation at all, 
as much as it is in our power to do so, with whatever opportunity we have, we are to be at peace with all men. Being at peace is the polar opposite of making war. We are to be actively pursuing peaceful relationships with everyone, not just ignoring the ones who wrong us. Pursuing peace will necessarily include things like returning good for evil, blessing those who curse you, rejoicing and weeping with those who need it, not thinking too highly of yourself, respecting what is good in the sight of all men, and realizing that everyone's gifts are God-given. A missionary friend once told me a story about his neighbor in the apartment complex where he lived. This man came to complain about the missionary's kids being too loud. If you've ever lived in an apartment, you know that can be a real trial. But the missionary didn't think his kids had been excessively loud. And this neighbor was excessively angry with them. And he said some very hateful things to the missionary. Well, later, as the missionary was studying Proverbs, he came to Proverbs twenty-one fourteen, which says, A gift given in secret subdues anger. The Lord used this verse in the missionary's heart to go out and buy a gift for that neighbor. Not just a little gift, but he bought something pretty expensive. And he delivered it anonymously to that neighbor's doorstep. Well, the neighbor guessed, rightly, where the gift had come from. And he came in contrition to visit the missionary and to apologize for his unreasonable behavior. As Christians, we are to do the kinds of things that bring people together and avoid the kinds of things that drive people apart. And this is a good example of how we can take action, specific action in our lives to do just that. As members of one body, we are to do the things towards outsiders that bring people together and, that, and we're to avoid the things that drive people apart. Sometimes, as this verse indicates, that will not be possible, and it is not always in our power to do so. But when it is, we are to do it. So the first positive and negative is to not repay, but respect and live in peace. The second in verse 19 is do not take revenge, wait for God. Verse 19 says, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. Once again, Paul says that if someone mistreats you, you're not to take it into your own hand to pay them back, but you are to leave room for God's wrath. This implies that inserting yourself in a vengeful way, you are not leaving room for God's wrath. Your payback may be all the payback that that person receives. Let God deal out justice in his own way and in his own timing. Don't try to handle it on your own. Why not? Well, the repayment of or judging of evil is just simply not something that is up to you. It's not one of the responsibilities that God has given to us as Christians. In fact, it is forbidden. Matthew 7, 1, I'm sure you're familiar with. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. Here in our passage in Romans 12, Paul cites passages from Deuteronomy and Proverbs that show how retribution has always belonged to the Lord and that we can count on him to do the work of repaying wrongdoers. As a recipient of mercy, you now view your enemies with compassion during their times of need. 
When they are hungry, you can give them something to eat. When they're thirsty, you can give them something to drink. Scripture tells us that under that kind of care, your enemies will be painfully aware of the discrepancy between their treatment of you and your treatment of them. Your enemy may even see your good deeds and repent. He may become your brother in Christ. But if not, continue to leave revenge in God's hand where it belongs. Don't allow vengeful thoughts or bitterness to dominate or control you in your actions or your thinking or your speech. Don't allow vengeance to have the victory or the last word. As the final command reads in verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do not allow yourself to be sucked in by evil, doing negative things in response to those who mistreat you. Instead, play offense by practicing the counterpoints, the positive counterpoints that we've discussed in this section. For example, give a blessing when a curse is deserved. Have sympathy for others. Keep a humble mind, remembering how God saved you when you were lowly. Associate with those who are lowly. Respect what is right in the sight of all people and live in peace. By doing these things, you can actively reduce the score of evil in this world rather than increase it. Instead of letting the wickedness of your enemies hold you in its power, use your power as a spirit-filled Christian to do good to them. In so doing, you will disarm them and you will leave room for God to take up your cause much more effectively than you could ever do. And this is the way of the cross, isn't it? Listen again to Isaiah in 53, 12, when he says of the Messiah, Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. Therefore, I will allot allot him a portion with the great. Jesus entrusted his soul to God when he suffered injustice. And look what great evil God overruled because Jesus was willing to set aside his rights and leave vengeance to God. And look at the reward that Christ received also for his sacrifice. God is still in the business of taking what is evil or what people mean against us for evil and making it into something good. And when we are his followers, we will also share in Jesus' reward. And so we are free. We are free to respect what is right in the sight of all men and to live at peace with them. We are free to wait on God to take vengeance. And we are free to overcome evil with good. Charles Spurgeon wrote the following. God's great design in all his works is the manifestation of his own glory. Any aim less than this were unworthy of himself. But how shall the glory of God be manifested to such fallen creatures as we are? Man's eye is not single. He has ever a side glance to his own honor, has too high an estimate of his own powers, and so is not qualified to behold the glory of the Lord. It is clear then that self must stand out of the way that there may be room for God to be exalted. Self must stand out of the way 
that there may be room for God to be exalted. In Romans 12, we've been repeatedly reminded of our need to get ourselves out of the way, to be transformed in our thinking and renewed in our minds so that we can live lives of obedient and humble service to God within the body of Christ. Will you commit to having this humble attitude of Christ in your life, in your service to God within the church, and in facing persecution or mistreatment from your enemies? There is victorious life for those who are new creations in Christ, as you worship God, as you serve one another, and as you love your enemies. Thinking back to Paul's original command in chapter 12, verse 1, let's talk for just a minute about what conformity to the world looks like in our current health crisis. If you're conformed to the world right now, you're worried, you're anxious, you may be living in fear, you may be panicking, you may be hoarding food and supplies, or you might be mocking those who are hoarding food and supplies. You might binge on entertainment or food. You might be complaining about all the things you have to give up or change about your life. Or you might be turning work from home into doing little to no work at all. But what if we are being renewed in our minds as believers? Well, then we're going to be looking for opportunities to love and serve one another. We're going to be striving to be a light to our neighbors by demonstrating peace and patience and kindness in the midst of this trial. We're going to still continue to practice generosity and hospitality as we are able and applying wisdom, of course. We're to work hard, do our work heartily as unto the Lord, knowing that he is always watching. We're going to redeem the time that we've been given at home with our loved ones, with our children and husbands and other family members by doing things that would benefit and edify them. We're going to continue to grow in our personal sanctification, maybe now more than ever. We're going to trust and not be afraid. And we're going to give thanks in all circumstances because this is God's will for us in Christ Jesus. Respond to these commands in obedience today and ask the Lord to correct your thinking in any ways that it might be off. Stop being conformed to this world and continue to be renewed in mind so that you can discern what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God in this and in every situation. And in doing so, we'll be able to serve effectively in the body of Christ for his glory and for the advance of his kingdom. Let's pray together. Lord God, you are so good to us. You have given up everything to send your son to the world to redeem us. Sinners who didn't deserve it, Lord. I pray for each of us as we go forward into this next day that you've given us by your mercy. That we would imitate Christ in our willingness to set aside our own concerns, our own rights, our own troubles to lovingly serve one another, to think about others as more highly than we think about ourselves, to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, and to seek to be a light to a world that is lost in darkness. Lord, we give you thanks for our homes, for our families, for the things that you have brought into our life to sanctify us and test us and try us. Lord, we know that all of these things are good. We know that they come from your hand. And we know that we can trust you with them and through them. Lord, give us joy as we go about seeking to put these commands into practice. Give us peace 
knowing that our eternity is secure with you. As you remind us in Romans that nothing can separate us from your love. Lord, we are honored to be called your children. We are honored to be a part of the family of God. And we give you thanks for that. In Jesus' name, amen.